I've always had problems with God's timing. Ever had those moments in life where you ask, why is this happening now, God? The timing just doesn't make sense. Often for me, God is too slow. The one who created the world in six days doesn't do things quickly enough for me. So I've had problems with God's timing. I've also had problems with where God places me. Ever found yourself at a place in life where you thought, God, I don't want to be in this place. I want to be in another place. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. I'm not happy. Sometimes I have a problem with the circumstances that God gives me. God, I don't understand these circumstances that make absolutely no sense to me. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why this is happening. And I don't understand what it's for. I'll call these times the cave moments. When everything seems dark and cold. You even start to imagine, th imagine things happening in your mind that aren't actually happening. You ever been in those caves? Have you ever asked those kinds of questions? Well, God is waiting for you in Luke 2. Here we have a couple of different caves. First, the cave of God's sovereignty in your questions. And secondly, the cave of God's gospel in your responses. We'll take them one at a time. First, the cave of God's sovereignty in your questions. You have questions and your answers are found in God's sovereignty. Right away, I want you to see that God uses unpleasant people in his sovereign plan. Notice verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, I want you to notice God's control in this text. God has Caesar Augustus and his regional representative to do his bidding. Caesar Augustus was the first and probably the greatest Roman emperor. He expanded the empire to include the entire Mediterranean world, which means he reigns over most of the civilized world. He established the famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace. He ushered in the golden age of Roman literature and architecture. His great uncle was Julius Caesar. Many of you took a Shakespeare class in high school or college. This is Julius Caesar's grand nephew. And they say that Caesar Augustus came to lead Rome when it was made of bricks. But when he died, Rome was made of marble. Caesars believed, much like the pharaohs, that they were divinely bred. They were linked to the gods. And this Caesar thought he was the Messiah. He even starts building the temple because whoever builds the temple is the Messiah. Just a few years before the birth of Christ, Caesar Augustus had coins minted. With Julius Caesar on one side, given the title God. And then his own image stamped on the other side, bearing the caption, the Son of God. See, these were the days when it seemed like Caesar Augustus was in control of the events of the world. And Mary and Joseph are just pawns in his awesome, efficient administration. However, nothing could be further from the truth. It might look like Caesar was calling the shots. It might look like Mary and Joseph were helpless pawns who were caught up in the movements of world history. But in reality, every move was perfectly timed and directed by the hand of God. Our times are in God's hands. He is sovereign. 
And he can use the most powerful empire on earth to do his bidding because he rules over all. And many of you need to remember that right now. That God reigns and the most powerful man on earth is just a pawn in the hands of a sovereign God. Maybe the person you're praying will go away is a pawn in God's big plan. Do not fear. God reigns. Augustus was God's errand boy. He delivered a decree at precisely the right moment. And this decree ordered that a census be taken. And Caesar Augustus ordered this census for two reasons. The first reason. Historians inform us was he wanted to determine the number of military-aged men that were in the kingdom. And this would allow him to draft any number of men at any time he chose. The second reason, which was more important to Caesar, was for financial purposes. This was a registration for the purpose of taxation. All the inhabitants of Rome, whether Jew or Gentile, were to go to the town of their lineage and register their name, their occupation, and their children's names. Hi, I'm Kyle. I'm a pastor. We have four children, Everly, Weston, Stafford, Haddon. I just about forgot it, to be honest with you, so many. It's, uh, just, and then we have another one. What's the name? Uh, God is orchestrating everything. And verse 4, notice what verse 4 says. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So notice right off, God uses unpleasant people in his sovereign plan, but God also uses unknown places in his sovereign plan. Bethlehem. Now, what do we know about Bethlehem? Bethlehem was the same town in the Old Testament where Jacob buried his wife Rachel after she died in childbirth. And the Bethlehem fields that Mary and Joseph passed by were the same fields where Ruth had once gathered wheat until she was noticed by Boaz. This is the same little village where a shepherd boy named David tended the family sheep before he was chosen to be the next king of Israel. More recently, John Piper's mother was killed outside the city in a bus accident. However, the city is known for more than that. You're already thinking, I, I know of another event in Bethlehem. I know Micah chapter 6 verse 2. Micah 6 2 says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But how is God going to get Joseph and Mary to the sleepy little town of Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born there? Well, God says, no problem. I've got a Roman emperor and I've got a governor of Syria that will do just fine. I've got their administ administrators who will say to them, you know, I think, the, I think the best way to get this whole thing done is just to get people to go back to their hometowns. That's the best way to register them. And you see this and some of you are still saying, I don't want to be here. I want to be someplace else. God, I don't know how you're going to get me from here to where I want to be. And I would just remind you that God had no problems getting Joseph and Mary from where they were to where they needed to be. So here's how that should land on you. Stop jockeying for position. God can get you there. And he can use the most powerful empire on earth to do it if he needs to do it. God is sovereign in all of his ways and all, all of our times and all of our places. All the circumstances of your life are in his hands. And, and some of you, you do think that God is sovereign in true 
in, in cosmic eternal terms, but not in every detail of your life. And if that's you, you have been deceived. You have been lied to. You have been discipled by Satan. The city and subdivision in which you're living isn't by chance. Your business and your competitor's business aren't outside of God's plan for your life. Here's an interesting little, little factoid in verse 2. It says, this is the first registration. Now, the first registration was lesser known. The second was widely known. You may remember reading of that in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Now, scholars have pointed out that the name Bethlehem means house of bread. What an ideal birthplace for the bread of life. See, God can use unpleasant people in his sovereign plan. God uses unknown places in his sovereign plan. And God uses uncomfortable circumstances in his sovereign plan. Bethlehem was at least a three-day trip from Nazareth. So we're looking at Mary. Mary is very pregnant. She could have this baby at any moment. She and Joseph travel 70 to 90 miles depending on the route in which they chose. They finally arrive at the first century motel. Just a few weeks earlier in our text, the angel said to Mary, Greetings, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. So I'm a little surprised to read here that Mary now hears there's no room for you in the motel. The two phrases don't seem to go together. Greetings, highly favored one. Sorry, ma'am, the registration process brought in more people than expected. We have people sleeping in the lobby. You have to leave. We have no room for you. I mean, those circumstances seem to contradict the power and the comfort of God's previous words. Now, I understand the uniqueness of this, of course, in redemptive history. But isn't this the way it is with all believers in all generations? The Lord says to you, I love you and I will never leave you or forsake you. But you hear the doctor say, and even this week, it's cancer. God says, I love you and I'll never leave you or forsake you. But some of you hear from your spouse, I just don't love you anymore. I found someone else. I love you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Dad, I know I'm 15, but I'm pregnant. I love you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Mom, I hate you. I can't wait to leave this house. I love you, I'll, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Mrs. Smith... On behalf of our grateful country, I want to extend our deepest sympathies and appreciation because your husband has given the ultimate sacrifice to protect our freedom. Some of you think that circumstances can ruin your life. Some of you think that circumstances have already ruined your life. But circumstances can't ruin your life. The only thing that can ruin your life is the way that you respond to those circumstances. Because in this passage, God is saying to us, there is no circumstance where my power cannot be displayed. There is no weeping where my comfort isn't sufficient. And there is no circumstance that trumps my promise. So hear me loud and clear. Trust me. Believe me. And whenever the why is bouncing around in your five-ounce brain, add to that why this question. Lord, how can I glorify you in this? I don't know what you're doing, but I do know you want me to know you more. I do know you want me to love you more. I do know you want me to glorify you more. So in this, how can I glorify you? 
It's interesting. Uh, R.C. Sproul didn't believe that it was required for females to come on this registration journey. That only men were required to make it. But Joseph chose to bring Mary along because of how close she was to delivery. So the argument could be made that Mary should be laying at home in comfort with her cousin Elizabeth, who is returning the favor, delivering her baby. Instead, the night air is punctuated by Mary's cries of pain. She's surrounded by manure and the stench of animals. The ground would have been packed hard by the livestock, or worse yet, muddied by recent rain. And they're not in a barn like most of you picture. Justin Martyr... I mean, how much do you have to hate your son to name him Justin Martyr, right? I mean, the only thing worse would be able to name him Justin Timberlake, <laughs> Justin Bieber. Actually, um, he, Martyr came after he was martyred for his faith. So this second century church leader stated that the specific birthplace of Jesus was a shallow cave that was used to shelter animals. It was a common practice in those days. Your local pole barn companies didn't come and construct barns for cattle. Animals were kept in caves. And it was in a cave that Mary gave birth to Jesus. There were no doctors or nurses, no friends or even a midwife to help this frightened teenage girl deliver her slippery son into the calloused hands of a teenage carpenter named Joseph. She wrapped his little fat appendages with cloths and laid him in a fonte. Greek word translated feeding trough. Now Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem. Jesus was born in a cave in Bethlehem. And around 30 years later, he would die on a cross in Jerusalem. And they would lay him in a first century tomb, which in that day was a cave. He was born in a cave, buried in a cave. One cave brings life, one cave brings death. A Christmas cave and an Easter cave. One cave Jesus exited in the arms of his mother wrapped like a, a little mummy. The other cave Jesus exited after taking his mummy clothes off and wrapping death in those bandages. He walked out, but death stayed in. I'm trying to show you that Jesus does some of his best work in a cave. And let me just take a sidebar for skeptics for a moment. When Jesus left heaven, he went from riches to rags. We call that the virgin birth. And Christianity is irrelevant without the virgin birth. And some of you just have difficulty with the virgin birth. And for the life of me, I can't understand why. If we can make a woman have a baby without an intimate act through in vitro fertilization, why is it hard to believe that God gave life without an intimate act? And so while you're struggling to grasp the virgin birth, let me try to convince you of something even more unbelievable. Jesus rose from the dead. And here's what I found. If you can find your way to believing in the empty tomb, the virgin birth will be no problem. We have in our text a cave of God's sovereignty in your questions. And then another cave, the cave of God's gospel and your responses. As I unpack verses 8 through 20, I'm going to be dropping some gospel principles throughout. Notice what verse 8 says. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God gives his heavenly announcement of the Lamb to Lamb keepers. The imagery of the shepherd is redeemed in scriptures. The Bible speaks positively about the role of the shepherd. In fact, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, illustrating God's work with us as a shepherd works with his sheep. However, in the first century, you couldn't get much lower than the shepherds. They were the ultimate unskilled laborers. Shepherding was a job you gave to kids. Remember, David and all of his brothers? Which brother had the job of taking care of the sheep? The runt of the family. And as an adult, if you were still a shepherd, it was a total life fail. They were the lowest rung of the social ladder. They were not known for being clean. They were known for thievery. Oh, was, was that your sheep? My bad. <laughs> they, Their testimony was not accepted in the court of law because they were notorious liars. So it's a big deal that the angel delivered the announcement of Jesus' birth to outcasts. God bypassed announcing the news to the educated, the religious, the elite, the politically connected, the wealthy, the powerful. It did not arrive to the temple priest, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, nor the rule-keeping Pharisees who led the local synagogue movement. God did not have someone send a memo to King Caesar Augustus saying, man, you think you're the savior of the world? I'm sending the savior of the world. No. The shepherds had to be the least likely people on earth to receive an angelic announcement about the birth of a king. In fact, shepherds were considered ceremonially unclean. Keeping flock was not glorious work. There were certain things that fit well within the shepherd's job description. Delivering lambs, fighting off wolves, touching dead animals, eating outside on the hillside without the benefit of purified water for cleansing. The nature of their work meant they did not observe the ceremonial laws. They worked on the Sabbath since obviously sheep do not take Saturdays off. So they weren't very involved in the religious services of their day. They are the lowly and the humble, the unimportant and the ignored by the world. But not by God. To these lowly men, the angel gives the highest theology. This group of shepherds kept their sheep out at night. And this is not the best shift. This was only done for a special group of sheep. These lambs were the Passover lambs. They kept them out at night so that they would not intermingle with the other sheep. This is what the rabbis tell us from this time. Flocks that were close to Jerusalem were all devoted to the temple sacrificial system. Yet, these shepherds themselves, though they were raising animals that were to be used in the sacrificial system, because of their uncleanness would not likely be allowed to participate in the public service of worship. 
They were guardians of the lambs that pointed to salvation, but were out of reach of salvation themselves. Salvation was so close, but so far away. And it's here that I want to give you a gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, it exposes us for who we are. Friend, you have rebelled against God. You have chosen a piece of fruit over Him. So He came down to you. God is not born in glory, but in humility. Not in a palace of gold and silver, but in a feeding trough for animals. Not clothed in silk, but wrapped in rags. In other words, in this passage, we're seeing God humbling Himself for our sakes. It is a glorious picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. Whatever it takes, He does. Whatever it costs, He pays. Wherever He has to go, He goes. And whatever He has to bear, He gladly bears. And He does not experience any of this because of His sin. Because He had no sin. He accepts this experience of humiliation so that He can become your sin. See, you are the shepherd in need of a sacrificial lamb. And when you have been a recipient of this grace, you have an innate desire to tell it on the mountain, to proclaim it to the nations. This grace belongs in every home. G.K. Chesterton, which is like the most quotable human being who ever existed, said this, and I quote, Christmas is built upon a beautiful and intentional paradox that the birth of the homeless should be celebrated in every home. End quote. We've looked at shepherds. Now let's talk for a moment about animals. We do not have a lot of tree huggers in our church, although I love the ones that we have. But we do have a lot of animal huggers. And you cringe every time you hear Jesus refer to himself as a lamb because you're concerned about cruelty toward animals. God designed animals to be used by humans, but not abused by humans. The sacrificial system was not some sick middle school boys who torture cats in a garage. Mindless torture of animals is sickening. And that's not what we find in the scripture. Now, now Bible's over here. I'm, I'm over here. Killing an endangered giraffe, like three or four left on the entire planet, so you can put his head in your office, just seems strange to me. I'm not saying it's unholy, it just seems strange to me. I, I, I think there are reasons to kill animals. And I, I think there's three of them. One, if it's a threat to your safety. So if that giraffe is coming at you, about to stomp you into a pancake, take the shot and make sure it's a good one. <laughs> Human life trumps animal life. They, are not a ma- they aren't made in the Imago day. We are. So if you have to kill an animal for your safety, I think that's fine. Uh, for your food. Chicken, kill it and eat it. Cow, kill it. Deer, kill it and eat it. In the Philippines, they eat horse. Local Chinese restaurants in Clarksville, they say it's beef. We all know it's cat and dogs. <laughs> you, you enjoy the good food. Nothing is wrong with that. All right? Uh, third reason, this is like way out there, but non-native invasive species, like ball pythons in the Everglades. You can kill them without, without eating them. They're devastating the ecosystem in Florida. Some of you in Florida know about that. They're non-native. By killing them, you're protecting other wildlife. So I said all that to say this. Animals shouldn't be abused, nor should they be worshipped. In the United States, we treat animals like humans. 
I mean, we're buying them clothes, gourmet food. People let them kiss them in the mouth. I mean, it's really just a sad state of affairs in the U.S. <laughs> if your dog has a sweater, you need to repent. <laughs> like a legit Ralph Lauren sweater, I am worried for your soul. All right, let's get back to the text here. So what, what are the shepherds doing? This is where I'm going. What are the shepherds doing? They're raising animals for sacrifices. These lambs are pointing to a full and final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. That's why, that's why we don't have altars in this church. That's why we don't call this the altar. And, and it's also why we don't have an altar to sacrifice animals. Jesus said we don't need those anymore. There should be no more animal sacrifices. They were road signs. Jesus is the destination. They were the shadow. Jesus is the reality. So we've seen in verses 8 through 20 some shepherds and some animals. Let's look at some angels. John Owen in the 1600s said, In the divine scriptures there are shallows and there are deeps. Shallows where the lamb may wade and deeps where the elephant may swim. Now he means by that there are some parts of the Bible that the youngest Christian can understand. And some parts of the Bible that the most mature, most theologically savvy, most studied Christian cannot plumb the depths. And friends, I think this is one of those moments. We find an army of angels appearing before the shepherds declaring what? Good news. Same word for gospel. The birth of Christ. They are declaring the gospel. And understand this. This army of angels is far more powerful than a billion nuclear bombs. <laughs> far more powerful than the United States Army. This army of angels could have incinerated every human being on earth should God have appointed it. This army of angels is far more powerful than anything you could possibly conceive. And this army of angels comes to bring peace? Peace? Normally we don't send an army to announce peace. Normally we send an army to kill people and break things. But this army comes to announce peace. And I think this very announcement of peace by this army is a reminder that one day this army will come again with Jesus and then it will be too late for sinners to find peace. Now is the time to receive the free, gracious peace offered. Because then it will be too late. These angels came singing. What were they singing? They were singing the gospel. What did that look like? Were the big angels singing bass and the little angels singing tenor? I don't think so. It was a poetic monotone chanting, swelling and praising. An unnumbered host of angels must have shaken the ground with their chanting. The shepherds were greatly afraid, or as the old King Jimmy says, sore afraid. But these angels, you understand, they're excited about the gospel. And you're like, Kyle, it's their job to be excited about the gospel. That's what they're being paid for. Friend, you must understand that the angels never go through the motions. You and I may go through the motions. There may be days when we're here singing where your love ran red, my sin washed white, and our minds are a million miles away and we're mad at one another, thinking about our to-do list. We're going through the motions. But the angels never do that. 
when the angels say, glory to God in the highest, they mean it. And they are genuinely excited about the gospel. And I want to tell you this, my friends. The angels ought not to be more excited about the gospel than you and I. Because these angels didn't need to be forgiven. They were without sin. The angels didn't need for Jesus to die for them. These angels had never rebelled against God. You and I have. And for that reason, we ought never to let the angels outsing us. Another gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, we get loud. These angels are excited about the gospel. We ought to be more excited about this gospel. Angels who need no forgiveness love this gospel. How much more should we who desperately need forgiveness ought to love this gospel? Does your praise of God for his grace in the gospel rival the praise of angels? When I'm finished expositing this text, we're going to sing a song. These are the lyrics. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Born thy people to deliver, love this, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. We should not let the angels sing that louder than us. The Bethlehem manger didn't just hold a baby lamb, but a baby lion, and he's coming back to rule and reign. Final gospel principle. When the gospel is proclaimed, it changes our outlook on the monotony of day-to-day -day living. It is important for you to note what the gospel does in the day in and the day out of our worlds. Nothing has changed in the social standing of the shepherds. It's not like all of a sudden, since they heard from the angels and they had gone to the manger and seen the Messiah, that all of a sudden their testimony was accounted in the court of law. It's not like all of a sudden they could hold office. It's not like all of a sudden they could be trusted in society's eyes. It's not like they didn't spend their entire days in and out of caves. No real life change in the monotony. None of that was changed, yet they left rejoicing. This birth gives meaning to your job. It infuses every minute you work with value. It gives meaning to your to-do list, stay-at-home mother. It transfers your identity from what you do to who you are in Christ. And then you begin to view your waiting, your questions, your circumstances in the light of God's sovereignty, and it emblazes everything with meaning. I think of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. The, the very last book entitled The Last Battle. Queen Lucy has this great line where she essentially says, in our world, something was once born in a stable that was larger than our entire world. I'd like to rephrase it. Something was once born in a cave that was larger than any of our caves. Friends, your caves make sense in light of the cave of God. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. 
We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.